strategizing ways to get people, especially young people, interested in learning about nuclear issues is always a challenge. So when you learn of a 21-year-old activist who has already generated two profoundly important actions, along with a complex understanding of the philosophy and strategy behind them, and she tells you, The point of these kinds of new forms of media like alternate reality games is that they can perform a close reading on the pervasive and often overlooked systems and codes that organize the way that we experience our lives. And that can be the first step to staging an intervention or disruption in those sites where power operates. Did you understand that? It took me a while, but I finally did, and I was tremendously impressed with the complexity of her thought. I don't know many people of any age who speak on such complex issues, let alone with such a vocabulary. So when you hear someone like that, you may be encouraged to think that there might be a new generation out there that will help us escape from the uncomfortable seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we speak with a remarkable young anti-nuclear activist from the University of Chicago, India Weston. Hers is an encouraging story for a change on how she got involved in nuclear issues and how there are new ways opening up that have a real chance of engaging a younger generation in joining us doing this work. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, Numbnuts of the Week for Outstanding Nuclear Boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than we're bound to hear on Trump's emergency address to the nation tonight. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, January 8, 2019, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting here in California, where the Trump administration's Department of Energy has announced that it intends to leave almost all of the contaminated soil in its area of the Santa Susana Field Laboratory not cleaned up, despite admitting that it would violate the legally binding agreement it entered into with California in 2010. The cleanup was supposed to start in 2017. The breach of long-standing promises is included in the final environmental impact statement for the Santa Susana Field Lab cleanup, which was released by the Department of Energy, DOE, on December 18 of last year. DOE also proposes to not remediate most of the contaminated groundwater at the site, but to just leave it to naturally attenuate. 
No, radiation will not dilute and go away. It will disperse, meaning all of those atoms, each one of which is dangerous, will just keep going as far and as wide as they possibly can, with nothing to stop it, certainly not any part of our government. The site housed 10 nuclear reactors, one of which suffered a partial meltdown and three others which also experienced serious accidents. There was a plutonium fuel fabrication facility and a hot lab which caught up highly irradiated nuclear fuel shipped in from around the country. Radioactive and toxic chemical wastes were burned for years in open-air pits. And this is also the same site where the Woolsey fire broke out last month. And now the California Department of Toxic Substance Control has released a preliminary survey that basically says, hey, nothing went wrong here, nothing to worry about, move along. This despite the fact that the Woolsey fire broke out less than 1,000 yards away from the site of the 1959 meltdown. Denise Duffield of Physicians for Social Responsibility Los Angeles said, DTSC's report has no credibility. As the critique demonstrates, there are virtually no measurements from the time of the fire, which is what matters most, and only a handful of very insensitive measurements taken days after the fire was out. Even so, DTSE found some elevated soil and ash concentrations off-site, which it proceeded to dismiss. We will, of course, continue to follow this story. And a reminder that there is sampling taking place for free of dust in the homes and in the areas of any houses or businesses that are within 25 miles of the Santa Susana Field Lab site. This is in the wake of the Woolsey fire. It's being coordinated through Fairwinds Energy Education. Fairwinds is spelled with an E. And we will have a link up to their protocols for how to get your samples and make certain that they are accepted. Up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 394. We'll also have a link up to an article about the work of Marco Kaltofen of Worcester Polytechnic Institute. He, along with Arnie Gunderson and Fairwinds Energy Education, are coordinating the testing of the samples that are sent in from Santa Susana Field Lab. Again, that will be a link up on the website. This is the same kind of work that was done up at the Hanford site in Washington State when, after workers were exposed to radiation from the Purex plant, a facility, highly radioactive facility, that was being torn down, they were given a clean bill of health by the state and the feds, only to find out that radiation exposure was not only inhaled by 11 of the people who had worked there, but it was found in their homes and also in some of their cars. This is good, important, scientific, data-based work that the government is clearly not providing. San Diego attorney Michael Aguirre is asking the FBI to determine whether performance errors in the handling of radioactive waste by Southern California Edison contractors at the San Clemente nuclear plant were more than a regulatory violation. In a letter to the FBI San Diego field office supervisor, Aguirre said the findings and violations issued by the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission late last month could be considered criminal under federal law. Aguirre wrote to the FBI, The violations were frequent during the period January 2018 to August 2018. Indeed, Southern California Edison is a repeat offender. 
NRC investigators were examining a near-miss accident from early August when a 49-ton container containing spent nuclear fuel assemblies became lodged inside a storage cavity 18 feet above where it was supposed to be placed, and it dangled there for almost a full hour. While reviewing this near-miss, federal investigators found that Edison experienced a similar misalignment problem in July and failed to figure out what went wrong or develop corrective actions to prevent it from happening again. They also concluded that, quote, contact between the canister and vault components frequently occurred and said Edison failed to properly train workers responsible for transferring the spent fuel from cooling pools to so-called dry storage. And now... Edison is trying to restart the process like nothing was wrong. This time, may Aguirre prove to be the wrath of God. Obscure Werner Herzog reference. Those canisters at San Onofre, which are proving so problematic, are also being used at Vermont Yankee. And the NRC has filed a complaint against Holtec, the manufacturer of the casks used at Vermont Yankee, saying that it adopted a new design for its steel and concrete containers without federal approval. NRC officials say the company made changes after discovering a loose bolt last March, meaning March of 2018, at San Onofre in Southern California. As a result of that discovery, the Vermont Yankee plant, where 58 casks are now stored following the reactor shutdown four years ago, temporarily halted transfer of those casks from a spent fuel pool. The transfer was resumed after two months of inspections, despite the casks being in violation of federal safety regulations. Because, hey, it's only nuclear. What do we care about safety? In Connecticut, flirting with numbnut status, Governor Daniel Malloy announced the winners of a major clean energy procurement and included the selection of Millstone Power Station in Connecticut and Seabrook Nuclear Power Station in New Hampshire, two nukes being claimed as zero carbon and getting these energy contracts meant for renewables. Claire Coleman, attorney at Connecticut Fund for the Environment, told the Connecticut Mirror, the future is offshore wind, solar, geothermal, and smart energies for efficiency and energy storage. But the small investment in these newer resources, compared to the heavy investment in nuclear, largely don't reflect that. Instead, the state has doubled down on the energy resources of the past. More bad government thinking. New Mexico environmental regulators have approved a permit change that could ultimately allow for more waste to be placed at the U.S. government's only underground nuclear waste facility, the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant outside of Carlsbad, New Mexico. That site has only been cleared for low- and mid-range radioactive materials, transuranic waste, which is left over from the weapons manufacturing process. The permit modification changes the way the volume of waste is calculated. Specifically, it excludes the empty space inside waste packaging containers. Just watch. Soon they're going to want to exclude atomic space, which is the space between atoms. And all of these are just word games to start squeezing in more nuclear waste and, unfortunately, maybe leading to expanding the repository's mission to hold other kinds, meaning more highly radioactive waste. And Bill Gates is at it again. The billionaire philanthropist released a letter detailing what he learned in 2018 and what he hopes to accomplish in 2019. 
And one of his goals for the next year is to persuade U.S. leaders to get into the game of advanced nuclear energy. He wants to commit new funding, update regulations, show investors that it's serious. And guess who's a major investor, not only in new nukes, but also in waste remediation through Republic Services? Yeah. And Congress has passed a bipartisan bill to boost advanced nuclear energy. Doesn't that just make you feel warm and fuzzy? The bipartisan bill, idiots who don't understand about nuclear on both sides of the aisle, was approved by a voice vote in the House on Friday, December 21st. Approval comes a day after the Senate did the same, and Trump is expected to sign the bill, though it does not appear that he has done so yet. Over to Japan, where 187 teenagers and children have been found to have thyroid cancer or suspected cancer following the Fukushima nuclear accident. Concerns over radiation-induced thyroid cancer led to ultrasound screenings conducted at the Fukushima Health Management Survey. The observational study group included about 324,000 people aged 18 or younger at the time of the accident. Also in Japan, projects to export nuclear power plants, a pillar of the growth strategy promoted by the administration of Prime Minister Shinzo Abe Baby, appear to be crumbling. Factors behind the failures include ballooning construction costs due to strengthened safety standards after the triple core meltdowns at TEPCO's Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant in March of 2011 and growing anti-nuclear sentiment around the world. The export projects have effectively failed, and this takes down two nuclear power reactors that Hitachi was going to build in Midwestern Britain, and also a plan for nuclear power plants in Turkey. A little under 9.16 million. That's the number of bags of waste from decontamination efforts around the stricken Fukushima nuclear plant. The one cubic meter bags are found at some 114,000 interim storage or decontamination sites across the prefecture, stacked four layers high with the fifth layer of uncontaminated soil laid on top to block radiation as best possible. Now, mayors from five cities in Chiba Prefecture are requesting for an eighth time that the central government deal with high-level radioactive waste in their cities. The mayors began formally requesting the central government establish a long-term storage facility as of January 2018. Much of the contaminated soil has been stored in plastic bags in empty lots, some of these near homes or schools, others in watershed areas. From our friends at the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, ICANN, this piece of good news there has been a major breakthrough as the Australian Labour Party has committed to sign and ratify the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons when it forms a government. That looks to be in the first quarter of 2019. In the bad news department, Russia has announced two new weapons, a hypersonic glide vehicle that could deliver a nuclear strike at 20 times the speed of sound, and a so-called unstoppable underwater drone that experts fear could trigger a 300-foot radioactive tsunami with a massive nuclear blast at sea. 
In the UK, thousands of archive files relating to Britain's nuclear weapons and atomic energy programs have been withdrawn from public view without warning. In Abu Dhabi, concrete cracking has shown up in the containment buildings of two of four reactors under construction by South Korea at the Baraka nuclear plant, which is intended to be the first nuclear facility in both the United Arab Emirates and the Arab world. Numbnuts adjacent in Canada, where Canadian nuclear safety officials have been dealing with a split-second mistake that shut down a reactor at the Pickering nuclear station east of Toronto. Someone pushed the wrong button, and a machine that can produce half a billion watts of energy stopped. You know, if your laptop lets you think twice before it shuts down, don't you think a nuclear reactor should also? And now... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's out of the week. Let's say you've got an old radioactive abandoned site like Chernobyl. What are you going to do to take advantage of that chunk of land just sitting there? Why, let's throw a party. Let's throw a rave. Yeah, they did. Members of the rave community, often looking for new and improved places, put that in quotes, and settings to dance the night away, last December held a rave at Chernobyl. As described by Valery Korshinov, an artist from Kiev who masterminded the experience, For all the people, the world knew this place for tragedy, but we have made Chernobyl less harmful for the environment. We are safe. We have come here to change the history of Chernobyl. Uh, maybe not the history of Chernobyl, but certainly the history of the people there. If we just check back in three to five years to find out their thyroid cancer rate and 15 and more years for their heart tumor rate. But everybody's thought that they were safe because they were wearing suits to keep them protected for radiation. They're talking about the white Kevlar things. But you can't keep a good raver down. People danced, laughed, played, raved in the decontaminated, this is what they said it was, decontaminated area of the Chernobyl nuclear plant. Uh, no such thing. There's always residual there. And they were spreading brightness in a place reminiscent of a zombie apocalypse setting. Scientists, remember those people who have got, like, degrees and study this stuff? Scientists predict that it will take a minimum of 24,000 years before the zone will be considered inhabitable again. But the rave helped spread the propaganda that the city of Pripyat has shown signs of improvement, and a great portion of it is, quote, no longer contaminated by the harmful radiation. And the local government hoped to see an influx of tourists, which will help generate economic growth. So, whoopee, everyone, let's all go party down at Chernobyl. And remember, no glow sticks will be required. And that's why Valery Karshinov and you stupid young people dancing your lives away in Chernobyl and City of Pripyat and whoever else was behind this really stupid idea, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of the week. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, I know you. I know that you care about getting honest, verifiable nuclear news. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to this show. That's what we set out to provide at Nuclear Hot Seat every week. Verifiable nuclear information that's been sourced, checked, and footnoted. 
plus interviews with people who are genuine experts on various aspects of the nuclear industry and its impact on life, health, and our shared genetic future, as well as features with people on the front lines of activism around the world. Without your support, Nuclear Hot Seat would not be able to continue. So if you're grateful for this information, the kind that you get from the show every week, help us out by sending us a donation to help meet the expenses. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. That's where you can send a one-time donation of any size or set up an automatic recurring donation of any size. And for those of you who want to make a big difference but find yourselves on a budget, and that's a lot of people these days, on the website there's a big green Donate button that allows you to easily set up a recurring donation of just $5 a month. The same as you'd spend here in the U.S. on a cup of coffee and a decent tip. So start the new year right. Do what you can to help Nuclear Hot Seat stay up and running so that we can continue to search out and share information that the nuclear industry would really rather you not know. Whatever you can do to help, you have my gratitude. Here's this week's featured interview. Happy New Year! Happy New Generation! This week, we speak with a remarkable young anti-nuclear activist from the University of Chicago, India Weston, on the new media way she first discovered the hidden nuclear history, which is a fascinating story just in and of itself. Also, how she grew in her understanding of nuclear issues, and not only what motivated her to head up two extremely effective protests, but what they were and what they did. It is an encouraging story for a change of how there are new ways opening up that have a real chance of engaging a younger generation in joining us in the continuation of this crucially important anti-nuclear work. Now, I suspect there may be an age divide in how people get or respond to what our interviewee is saying. I know it sent me down some rabbit holes, which is a phrase I wouldn't have used before this interview. So, just a few crib notes. Jonathan Blow, who is referred to, is apparently a famous megastar in the video game creation arena. Chicago Pile 1 refers to the first so-called controlled atomic explosion, which took place at the University of Chicago 76 years ago. Hibakusha, Hibakusha, there are varying pronunciations. It refers to a survivor of either of the atomic bomb attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan, in 1945. And my apologies, but there are a few rough patches in the audio. What can I say? Technology. Here's the interview. India Weston, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for having me. Let's start out with a bit about you and your background and what brought you to nuclear issues. Well, I'm a fourth-year student at the University of Chicago in the Interdisciplinary Studies in the Humanities Program, and I have become, over the past two years, a transmedia performance artist. What does that even mean? So most of the work I do involves the networked computer, cuts across different media, and utilizes pre-existing technical platforms. So I will use social media to create different rabbit holes into 
a game or performance, and then people will find their way to live events or piece together narrative puzzles online. So this is a way of weaving together the virtual digital world and real world human being face-to-face experiences. Would that be an accurate way of looking at it? Yes, definitely. And, and in doing this, you can sort of parasite off of places where power maybe flows in an oppressive way and you can disrupt the flows to make them better for people who are marginalized. We're going to get to those points in a few minutes. Let's find out how you learned about and got involved with nuclear issues. I first became involved in nuclear issues through a game called Braid, developed by Jonathan Blow, which is a 2D side-scrolling platformer similar to Mario, but it functions as an allegory for the Manhattan Project and really punishes anyone who has a very goal-oriented mentality going into the game. So it runs contrawise to this American narrative of success. And I found that that was really powerful. And this was the first time that I realized that a game could make a critical argument in the same way that a book or a film could make that kind of argument. It was also the first time that I realized how little I know about nuclear energy and about the Manhattan Project and my own country's nuclear legacy. What was it that you learned from this game that showed you that you didn't know certain things about our nuclear history? Jonathan Blow would craftily include fragments of text from other sources, and those sort of worked as rabbit holes into this deeper mystery for me. And he also included visual imagery that was scientific and metaphorical for a lot of these issues. And in trying to piece together the argument of the game and what was Jonathan Blow trying to say through this, I ended up necessarily having to read up on history where I first really encountered the figure of Oppenheimer and like went in depth on that but then also became aware how America-centric pretty much everything is about the bomb. Then, just by coincidence, later that year, the University of Chicago was doing a lecture series, quote, commemorating the 75th anniversary of Chicago Pile One, and I didn't realize it would be largely a celebration, um, but that's where I first met Norma Field, and she really pulled me into nuclear abolition. For people who don't know, Norma is a professor at the University of Chicago, and she is very involved with Fukushima-based issues and has been instrumental in bringing forth the voices of the mothers, especially from Fukushima and their concerns to a wider audience. Was that the nature of the presentation that she gave? Absolutely. I think more than anything, I realized how critical it was to, in some ways, wrestle with the representational problems of the bomb, which we still haven't figured out any solution for that is really meaningful and gives voice to the people who suffered underneath, especially like the woman. After Norma's lecture, we had a long conversation about the absolute invisibility of the bomb and of radiation and the gendered problems of hibakusha. 
What did you determine to do as a result of the conversation and the information you were gaining? This always makes me angry to talk about because I'm just recalling how uncritical and disgusting the university was in this action. But on the 75th anniversary of the first sustained nuclear chain reaction, the University of Chicago commissioned Chinese artist Kai Guo Chang to create a rainbow pyrotechnic display in the shape of a mushroom cloud. Just the idea is so offensive. It was fireworks <laughs> that were being shot off in the shape of a very prettily colored mushroom cloud was what they were putting together. Yes, absolutely. As if there were birthday cake colors. Um, it, it was all pastels. And many hibakusha found it incredibly offensive. And the people of Japan found it very offensive. And the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat found it offensive because I was there and I covered it for the program. So for this celebration, I didn't hear about any students taking action to critique the university's decision in commissioning Kai Guacheng. So I decided to stage a piece of performance art that would be really tangential to Kai's work, not to disrupt it, but to create a rupture in the sort of sensible, like who could say what about this piece? I wanted people to have a space of reflection and critique and cognitive dissonance, whereas if it had just been Kai's piece, it probably would have been taken entirely celebratory. Before Kai's mushroom cloud exploded, there was meant to be a somber tolling of Rockefeller bells. However, this was paired with an audience countdown reminiscent of Times Square on New Year's Eve culminating in cheers and applause when the mushroom cloud finally erupted above the Regenstein Library. And it's something that Norma Field actually called plausibly belonging in a dark comedy about human folly in the face of impending disaster, which I thought was an amazing quote. So what was the nature of the action that you chose to take and ask others to be involved in? To stage an intervention in what would have been ultimately an unchallenging passive viewing experience of the cloud, I had seven performers, including myself, walk in front of the nuclear energy sculpture when all heads were turned to the sky in anticipation. These performers were drawn from the player base and design team of another project that I was working on that summer, which culminated in really a network of closely knit activists. But I also drew in some bystanders who found out about the event online just a night before. On the sound of the boom of the cloud finally erupting, we all dropped instantly to the floor and remained there in prolonged stillness. In other words, it was a die-in. Yes. What was the immediate impact of your action on site? So from what I could see, uh, and that was mostly the cloud looming over me and slowly dissipating, uh, eventually, I started to see people's faces gathering around and looking down at me, and they looked very disturbed and contemplative, and I feel like they were really going through some kind of internal cognitive dissonance within themselves where they were wrestling with the legacy of World War II and the way that America paints the bomb. Were there reporters on site, and did they relate? what you had done with this die-in? There were reporters. However, the University of Chicago Maroon newspaper failed to even acknowledge it. 
and their official photo essay of the university that was covering the event focused entirely on the spectacle of the cloud and not on the people who are underneath it. I believe that's a point that you made in a paper of yours that I read, that when people think of nuclear, which was, of course, mimicked by this fireworks event, they look to the sky, but they don't look to the ground to see what the actual impact of it was. Absolutely. How did the University of Chicago administration receive it or acknowledge it, or did they at all? They really didn't. It was something that, through their neglect, showed their hand sort of in what they really think about free speech. (laughs) Uh, This has been something that has been an ongoing debate on my campus because the university presents itself as a bastion of free speech, and yet we have a democratically elected graduate student union that isn't recognized, which the university administration refuses to bargain with, and they clearly did not recognize my performative action, or else they at least would have acknowledged it in their video essay of the event. I got a very tiny URL in the Maroon article covering the whole series of events that mentioned that there was some performance, but it didn't name me by name, and it didn't talk about any of the complexities of the performance. And, of course, by saying there was a performance, you could have been out there with guitars singing the glories of nuclear energy or the nuclear bomb rather than being in protest of what was going on there. It's clear that they wanted to minimize any media coverage that would have been of the event. Of course, Nuclear Hot Seat was there to cover it. And actually, I used the image of the fireworks going off rather scathingly throughout the material I put out on the episode and also the episode itself. Now, moving this forward, one of the things you sent me, and I have to say I'm tremendously impressed with it, is a paper dated December 13 of 2018 that you wrote called Artistic Interventions in UChicago's Nuclear Media Ecology, Methods and Analysis. What was this paper for? I used this paper as an excuse to create another performance piece a year after the 75th anniversary of Chicago Pile One. This was for, quote, for a class on censorship and information control that happened this fall. And they were very lenient on what you could do as a final project. So for me, I thought, ah, I was censored. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I, I know this subject intimately. So I'm going to create another piece that engages in continuous critical dialogue with the first act of censoring. You do make the point in the paper, and it's a very good one, that we acknowledge the big anniversaries. I often point out on this show that the media only likes to deal with anniversaries that end in a five or a zero. Absolutely. And of course, the 75th anniversary was one such event. But the point you make, and it's an excellent one, is that doesn't mean that there's no need to continue the conversation on the rest of the anniversaries. And of course, all the time in between too, but certainly taking it to the anniversaries. So this follow-up event that you chose to do for the 76th anniversary on December 2nd of 2018. What was that? 
On December 2nd, I woke up around 5.45 a.m. and made it to the Henry Moore Nuclear Energy Sculpture. I had another collaborator there, and I had brought all of this non-permanent Crayola paint and some boxes of chalk, and we stenciled in where the die-in protesters had been the year before uh, with the chalk and then painted in the bodies completely black so that they would speak intertextually both to the body as something that was censored, but also to the shadows that were left after the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki on the sidewalks. And then throughout the day, when people would pass by the site of the nuclear energy sculpture and the artwork, I would invite the passerbys to come up to the sculpture, engage in a critical conversation about nuclear energy, and to add themselves to the piece. So if they agreed, and luckily we had many people who did, they would lie down and I would stencil them in chalk and then fill in their body black as well. And then I would start smudging it with a rag. And because it was raining, you got this very distinct blurring effect that almost looked like burned out shadows or uh, the remnants of a blast. Those pictures, and I've seen several of them now, are quite eerie and ghost-like in their appearance. And actually, they do evoke the kind of carbon shadows that were left at Hiroshima and Nagasaki when people were evaporated by the blast. Yeah, they were, they were very emotionally difficult to draw for me. What has been the aftermath of that? I mean, you say it was non-permanent. Did it all wash off with water? Did you have to come back with scrub brushes on it? Is all trace of it gone? So this is very interesting. On December 6th, uh, we had evidence that the shadows had inverted their polarity. So where they used to be black, the shadows started to turn white. And whether this was a reaction between the paint, the rainwater, and the granite, or evidence that the university staff was ordered to scrub off the shadows and thus some newer granite is exposed where old granite that was dirty was rubbed away, we don't know. But there seems to be, and it's very eerie, you have pictures from an office that is up in an adjacent building. First, the black outlines, which it's good that you were able to record that, but then looking at it, and you can almost miss it, but then you see at a later time the white outlines, which if anything are more powerful because they're ghostly and you don't notice them, but yet they're there and you can notice them. That was the point. I think it couldn't have turned out better, really, if the university did authorize the effacement of the installation, then the white shadows are left there haunting the site like these almost unnoticeable ghosts viewed from the ground angle where you pass the statue. But then if you're a scientist working in the Eckerd Research Center, which is where we got that angle from, I think it's fitting that it's a reminder not to lose your own humanistic values in pursuit of grant funding or academic clout. Only the scientists are going to be the ones who can see them. And, of course, they're the ones who need to be reminded. Yes. Now, one of the things that we who are active fighting against nuclear are most concerned about is that we're getting older, demonstrably older, and we're always concerned about what we can do to attract a younger generation 
into doing this kind of work so that it continues. And at 21, you are demonstrably in that younger generation. Leona Morgan is no longer the youngest one we're dealing with. And I'm wondering from your perspective, what might be done to attract other young people to this issue and to this work. You mentioned that there already was some kind of a gamer program that got you interested initially. And you've also said to me separately that this project might turn into an alternative reality game. What might that look like? And is that the way to go if we are to attract our next generation? I think that games, because they are the fastest growing cultural and aesthetic form right now, are really something that we have to look into. I think there's no other way around it. They have replaced largely what film used to do alongside, of course, is like serialized television. But I think the main point, which I stated in my paper, quoting Rita Rally, is the way that our society is trying to express itself and is conceiving of revolutionary transformations has changed because of digital media. And there's, of course, room for embodiment in political projects, but we have to be strategic about these sites where power operates. I think the point of these kinds of new forms of media like alternate reality games is that they can perform a close reading on the pervasive and often overlooked systems and codes that organize the way that we experience our lives And that can be the first step to staging an intervention or disruption in those sites where power operates. So for me, I'm interested in media projects that are kind of parasitical social media or in spaces where either there's some kinds of habits that unconsciously form or where power is clearly oppressing someone, but there's not a lot of ways to get around it. For instance, Facebook with backends to what Cambridge Analytica, and yet it's still a huge part of our lives to have to use this program. So how can you use Facebook in a smart way, possibly an artistic way that can shift attitudes towards surveillance, for instance? So I create games that originally they were a type of viral marketing mechanism called an alternate reality game. And these describe cultural and aesthetic forms that really take advantage of the contemporary media landscape. They combine real world encounters or events that take place in physical quote meat space with the frequent shifts between screens that are really ubiquitous parts of our lives now. So, Many educational games suffer because direct learning content tends to trigger psychological defenses, and this reduces player engagement. However, because these alternate reality games uh, have this quality of shifting between screens and being on social media, but then also having this embodied component, that works to sever players' critical distance from the historical present, which allows us as designers to build a critique from the inside of oppressive systems. These games don't announce themselves as games either, but instead allow our players to stumble in through what we call rabbit holes, invitations into the world of the game that might include push notifications, live action events, links to mysterious websites, even payphone calls. 
I'm assuming in listening to this that someone who's quite a bit younger than me would be able to understand what you just said. <gasps> oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, think of it this way. If you have ever wanted your life to be like a Dan Brown novel for a week, I can build that for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be really interesting on the nuclear subject, certainly. Absolutely. So the, the point is, I think one of the things I'm interested in doing is creating one of these games that has to do with nuclear energy and can work to seriously change people's opinions about this topic. And I can't really say more because there are some things under the works, but I think it's an exciting prospect. That can be a subject of a future interview that we do for the program when you're ready to announce what you've put together. For now, if people want access to your extremely well-researched and well-written paper, with your approval, I will upload it to the website and make it available as part of this episode of Nuclear Hot Seat. Is that okay with you? That sounds great. And if people want to follow your work or get in contact with you or perhaps find ways to work with you, is there a way that they can contact you? Yes, they can email me at indiaweston at uchicago.edu, and I will be making a website soon. Terrific. Well, when that's ready, you'll let me know, and I'll let the listeners know. And we can follow you because the work you're doing is very different. It speaks to a different generation's, a younger generation's sensibilities, which we desperately need. And I'm certain that it's a way to communicate that I haven't considered, and most people haven't, but because you have, you're going to be the ones who lead us into that portion of the future. Is that okay with you? Yes. For now, India Weston, I want to thank you so much for the work that you have already done and also for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for having me. Leader in the new wave of anti-nuclear activism seen from the perspective of a much younger and more technologically astute generation. As the photo ID for this week's episode, I have used the picture of the black body outlines India painted around the nuclear energy bronze sculpture by Henry Moore, which is on the UC campus in Pride of Place. If you want to see the ghostly white outlines, they are also up on the website nuclearhotseat.com under this episode, number 394. We'll also have a link to India's article, which contains all of the photos, and a link to Nuclear Hot Seat's coverage of the 75th anniversary of that nuclear pile from episode number 337, December 5th, 2017. And of course, we look forward to hearing more about this remarkable young woman's actions. Activist shout out! The 40th anniversary of the Three Mile Island nuclear accident in Pennsylvania is getting underway and actually was started back in October by TMIA, Three Mile Island Alert. Their observance got underway on October 2nd with a press conference at the state capitol in Harrisburg on the issue of nuclear wastes being transported through Pennsylvania and across America. TMI Alert Chair Eric Epstein served as the event's moderator, and presenters included Kevin Camps and Paul Gunter of Beyond Nuclear. Camps is the radioactive waste specialist, and he addressed the safety and security risks of transporting highly irradiated nuclear fuel on America's roads and rails. 
His presentation included a drone's eye view of the roads and rails on which waste from Peach Bottom in Pennsylvania would be transported through central Pennsylvania. He also showed a video produced by TMIA's security expert and regular nuclear hot seat tech consultant Scott Portsline, which included footage of radioactive waste moving through central Pennsylvania. Other events are being planned and carried out between now and the actual anniversary on March 28th of 2019. It will be exactly 40 years since the accident happened, and we'll be bringing you updates here on Nuclear Hot Seat so you get an idea of what's being planned and how you might be able to participate even from a distance. If you're wondering what time it is, nuclear-wise, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists will host a live international news conference on Thursday, January 24, at 10 a.m. Eastern Time to announce the 2019 time of the Doomsday Clock. Last year, it was set to two minutes to midnight, meaning the approximation of how close we are to guaranteeing our own nuclear annihilation. This news conference will take place at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., and of course we'll report on the results here on Nuclear Hot Seat. The group Beyond the Bomb has signed on as an official partner of the 2019 Women's March on Washington. In their announcement, they point out that the largest in-person protest in the United States before the 2017 Women's March was the Nuclear Freeze March in 1982. So you are invited to join with them in Washington, D.C., or find a local march that you can participate in and wear your anti-nuclear regalia. And yes, this is a women's issue. Remember that women are one and a half times more likely to get cancer from the same radiation dose as a man. And for children, it's even worse. Five times more cancer rate for a boy exposed and ten times for little girls. The genetic future of our entire species is 10 times more likely to be harmed by radiation than the adult male that serves as the model for setting radiation dose limits. Yes, it's a woman's issue. Go out and march against nuclear in the Women's March. Here's today's final thought. In the UK, the National Trust, formerly known as the National Trust for Places of Historic Interest or Natural Beauty, is a conservation organization that covers England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. It's also the largest membership organization in the UK. And when a place is donated to the National Trust, it's in their care forever, for everyone to enjoy. Acts of Parliament have helped them make sure that forever means forever. Private land and houses left to the National Trust by former owners can never be sold. That's why their slogan is, forever for everyone. Now, when I saw that, I thought, that is a very useful phrase with multiple applications for those of us who are of the anti-nuke persuasion. First, it is that Earth is for everyone forever. Let's face it, it's the only planet we've got. As I first heard from Dr. Helen Caldicott, there is no planet B. For all the Mars curiosities and SpaceX pretensions and the like, there's no planetary suburb out there just waiting for us to pack up the kids in the house and move away from our decaying inner city of a planet. For better or for worse, Earth is our home. Forever, for everyone. That's the protection we're supposed to provide here in the United States for our national treasures— 
the national parks, national monuments, those places that have been officially put aside to be preserved as the genuine, irreplaceable wealth and beauty of our nation for all of us to be able to enjoy. That's what makes the recent rollbacks of Obama-era expansion of the Bears, Ears, and Escalante National Monuments such a crime against nature. These pristine lands are being auctioned off to fracking and mining interests, and high tariffs artificially slapped on imported uranium are once again making it lucrative to again mine radioactive uranium in those previously off-limits areas. Now, we don't need the uranium. There's a glut of it available in the world and stockpiled here in the United States. But with some juggling and jiggling of international finance, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, the current administration has made it profitable to mine it again here in the U.S. and in the process, destroy the pristine beauty of the land. This kind of beauty never returns. Once it has been dug up, excavated, tortured into giving up whatever minerals our ignorant society decides has monetary value this week, the mess can never be remediated back to its initial glory. The resulting desecration of these lands lasts forever for everyone. And of course, there's radioactive waste. There's always radioactive waste. What a mess. Every nuclear reactor has in its waste stream plutonium the most dangerous substance on Earth, radioactive for a half-life of 24,000 years, meaning a radiologically active life of 240,000 to 480,000 years. Is that the same as forever? Sure sounds like it to this human being, constrained as we as a species are to approximately three score and ten years, give or take a couple of decades. We have trouble as a species thinking of the impact of our actions on seven generations, which was the principle to gauge the impact of any action based upon the great law of peace of the Iroquois Confederacy and dating back to the 12th century. We can't think seven generations, so it's no surprise that we have no concept, no way of comprehending the radioactive mess we've been creating over the last 76-plus years, and that is still being created today, even as you're listening to this program. It's going to haunt humanity into an unimaginably long future, probably longer than we as a species will survive. In other words, radioactive waste will last forever for everyone unless someone, somewhere, figures out to do with it. Soon, please. Soon. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, January 8, 2019. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, miningawareness.wordpress.com, Three Mile Island Alert, Physicians for Social Responsibility Los Angeles, Fairwinds Energy Education, twoacorn.com, lucian.uchicago.edu, Tri-City Herald, KUSI.com, San Diego Union Tribune, Recorder.com, Massive.com, Associated Press, Washington Examiner, Futurism.com, Wall Street Journal, TheJournal.com, Mainichi.jp, Fukuleaks.org, The International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, Newsweek, StrangeSounds.org, TheGuardian.com, Hani.co.kr, TheProvince.com, 
ravejungle.com, the soul-dead cubicle drones who grind out press releases for World Nuclear News, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and our personal thanks to Dave Kraft of Nuclear Education and Information Service in Chicago and Professor Norma Field of the University of Chicago for their heads up on India Weston and her remarkable work. Now, a big shout out to you, Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world in 123 countries on six continents, and we're still counting. If you know of anybody in Antarctica, we'd really like to nail that one in 2019. And a big welcome to all of you who are listening on our growing network of broadcast stations around the U.S. If you know of a community radio station that would like to carry the show, please have them get in touch with Nuclear Hot Seat at info at nuclearhotseat.com or just give a shout out to me and I will get in touch with them. I am thrilled that we are on this journey together as kick-ass defenders of nuclear truth and supporters of atomic awareness. And remember... I've got a book out there, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and to Nuclear Hot Seat. If you're wondering how this program came about and who I am and how this happened, that's where you find out. It's available on Amazon. The music for the program was written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. Now, if you would like to get Nuclear Hot Seat, delivered right to your doorstep via email every week. That's a metaphoric doorstep. It's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down for the yellow box, and sign up for weekly email links to the latest show. I won't bug you with lots of marketing stuff. It's just the weekly show. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. We are also looking for people to assist in a growing social media presence. So if you have a skill in that area, let me know as well. We'd love to bring you on board. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news reports about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment and send a donation of any size to NuclearHotSeat.com. We will really appreciate your support. Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2019, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that when it comes to nuclear, not only can what you don't know hurt you, it probably already has. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So please, whatever you do, do not go back to sleep. Because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.